When I uh, turned 13, it was 1988, and when you're uh, 12 and 13, you're trying to kind of find a little bit about who am I as a person, what are my interests, what are my likes, like what am I really into, what's me, and and part of that search is music, you know, what's my thing, what's my jam, I'm making a mixtape, what am I going to put on here, and those of you who made mixtapes know there was a high level of commitment. You had to be there when the song was playing on the radio. You had to have one hand on pause, one hand on record. You had to be present. You were hoping the DJ didn't ruin the intro or the outro by talking over it. There was a lot of work involved in making mixtapes. And uh, so because of the, the year that it was, you know, 1988, um, there was all this, you know, rock and roll influence uh, that I liked and I still like. But then when the, as soon as it turned 1990, then there was this new emergent sound, the sound of hip hop and 90s rap. So my mixtapes were really mixed um, and like a, like a weird bag of trail mix. And my, my, my mixtape today that I listen to in my car is still like that. And how do you go from East ACDC to Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch? What is happening? And why are these things together? And oh, John Cougar, Mellencamp, and weirdly Phil Collins, but also Millie Vanilli. How did that, why are we, I just, you know. And uh, in 1990, there was this song that came out that it was legendary. Everybody loved it by a band called Extreme, and it's called More Than Words. And that song, More Than Words, is iconic. And it's not the first song that was ever written about love being, in its, in its essence, an action. It's not going to be the last song that was written about love in its essence being an action, but it just kind of captivated us about love, you know, love more than words. And everyone's like, yes. 1992, in my, in my mixed bag of musical trail mix, there was this Christian band called DC Talk. I stand by it. And... I had DC Talk mixed in there, and DC Talk did a song in 1992 called Love is a Verb. 20 years later, John Mayer writes a song, 2012, called Love is a Verb. We're just obsessed with love being verb and, t- and saying that it's a verb because, of course, at the core of what it is to be human is this desire for love, this desire to be loved. This is because we are image bearers of God who is in his very essence, love. So we're never going to stop writing songs and books and plays and films about the beauty and the power of our need for love being displayed in action for that very reason. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 12. This is the beginnings of Paul's love is a verb, exposé, from Romans 12 to the end of the chapter, 16. For 11 chapters, as we've been studying the book of Romans together as a church, for 11 chapters, the apostle expounds on how we are the recipients of God's undeserved, unconditional, unfailing love. And then when you get to chapter 12, the letter turns our attention to how those who are united to this Lord of love are empowered to resemble him and increasingly live lives marked by love. This notable shift about love being a verb. And right before I read this passage, we're going to start in verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter in 21. For those of you who may be new to Redeemer, new to the Scriptures, or exploring faith, I want you to know it's important for you to understand the context of this. I say this all the time, but briefly for your benefit. That living a life of love is not the gospel. Living a life of love is what Christians do because of the gospel. The gospel is the love of God through Jesus Christ for you that covers all your sin. 
that Jesus Christ lived the perfect, perfectly loving life that you and I are never going to live. And he died an atoning death, taking away all our sin. And he rose again on the third day, and his resurrection defeated death, giving the Christians the hope that we are not subject to the finality of death. That's the gospel. And because we believe that gospel is true, and what the gospel is for us, this life of love, this is what the gospel does through us. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written... It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Now all those who are united to Christ by grace were called to live this transformed life empowered by that same grace. And transformation flows first from having God's mercy, God's grace, his gospel in view. When the gospel is in view, we are able to have a sober self-view. And from the sober self-view, we're able then, from the humble confidence that that gives us, to look outside us, to live outside us, to lay our lives down and love others. So we're going to look at a few things this morning from this text. We can, of course, break each and every phrase out and be thoughtful about what that could look like in our lives in practical ways, and I encourage you to do that. And so I want us to look at, kind of group these thoughts the Apostle gives us into a few thoughts. And the first one is this, that God calls and he empowers us to love with sincerity. Now, in verse 9, the word sincerity there, uh, in the Greek, it comes from the word uh, anipocritus, and that's where we get our English word hypocrisy. And before I continue, I'm going to say this. The English translation of the Bible is sufficient. You can understand the Bible without knowing Greek, without knowing Hebrew. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to understand the message of the scriptures. So whenever I take you to the original languages, I'm not doing it because without it, you wouldn't understand the Bible. I'm doing it because the original language is is like putting spice on something you're already chewing on. It brings out all kinds of flavors. You're already chewing it. You're already enjoying it. You're already being nourished by it. And going back to that original language is like, oh, okay, now 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 I'm getting notes of something else. So that's the purpose for which I do it. I don't want to undermine your idea 
but unless you have the original language, you can't understand the scripture. So this word hypocrisy, the, the, the essence of the word in the Greek is that there's some acting going on. That essentially there is a hidden agenda, right? And so we can love, and so the apostle's saying, listen, you can't love, you can't love if there's a hidden agenda. You can, you can love and serve and do things because it suits your ego to look good. It suits your ego that other people think of you as a good and loving and caring person. But then the love is not sincere because it's fundamentally being driven by the view that you want others to have of yourself, right? Two people are stacking chairs. One person's doing it, not really just kind of like, I love Jesus and I love being a part of the church. The other person's stacking the chair. They're doing the exact same thing. And the other person's like, I hope heaven's watching. I hope, the, I hope my neighbors are watching. Look, see how good and loving I am? Two people running around, getting a meal ready. And, and, and they're running around in the kitchen. And one person's running around just thinking about how excited they are that everybody's going to be blessed by this meal. And the other person's running around going, I hope everybody notices just how hard I'm working. And you can always tell by the vibe that you get from the person that's truly serving and loving you and the person who's, who's serving is self-serving, right? That's the person that always kind of gives you the vibe like, don't you know that I'm killing myself for all of you and I sure hope you appreciate it. So the apostle says, our love actually has to be without ulterior motives here. It's got to be sincere. And we're not just checking a box. We're not loving others in such a way that we put them in our debt. After all that I've done, like, that's not love, loving with sincerity. And so if our love is not sincere, if we have ulterior motives, we might be very friendly in this church, but not be willing to be a friend in the church. We can have, we can have a very friendly church culture and actually be willing for me to be your friend, to care for the people, because I can be friendly. Again, the context Paul's talking to is in the church community, so let's keep it here for a moment. I can be friendly here in this community, but not be a friend, because to be a friend requires a sacrifice of my time and my energy, my emotional energy, my physical calendar, like in order for me to kind of get into your life, to walk out the things that this text gives us, that's going to require a level of sacrifice. And so in order for that to be, there's got to be love that is sincere. When we are sincere, we love each other. When we're insincere, we network each other. When we are sincere, then our thoughts are you know, what's needed and what is it that I can give to serve you. But when we're networking each other, I'm not thinking about what's needed. I'm thinking about what I need. I'm not thinking about what I can give. I'm thinking about, like, how I can kind of get it. And if you've ever been networked by somebody, it's a sinking feeling. Because the moment you realize you're being networked, you're like, okay, this feels gross now. Because I thought we were friends. I thought this was genuine. But now I'm realizing that you've just discovered I don't bring anything to the table, and now you're disinterested in me. I remember one time meeting a, a, a speaker uh, who, who, uh, in, in, from my, my prior life, my prior context, and he was one of these big guys that traveled all over the world. And I say big guys because, you know, it, people paid tens of thousands of dollars for him to speak. Big guys, quote-unquote. And uh, I remember uh, meeting him and going out for lunch with him and, and us kind of hitting it off and... and uh, and him being, hey, here, here's my personal cell phone number. And wow, I'm really excited about this. Oh, my goodness, I have this guy's personal cell phone number. So we text back and forth a little bit. And I was infatuated by this whole situation. I thought this thing was like, oh, this guy took a liking to me. And then the texts started being like, hey, when do you think I could come back and speak again? Oh, I don't really know. I don't make those decisions. Oh, well, who does make Do you think you could talk to them? And so once it kind of, I was kind of, oh, yeah, this doesn't really feel like I'm being loved. This kind of feels like a being network. And then I remember that when it was kind of like, you know, ask and see, you know, when I can come back and speak again, you know, because those honorariums share our suite in these particular circles. And uh, when 
I was kind of like, yeah, no, it's probably not going to be, you know, I don't know. I don't make those decisions. It's not going to be for a while. Radio silence on the phone. It's gross. And you feel like, oh, wow. And you all probably have stories of this. Our love, it needs to be with sincerity. There's not ulterior motives. And we need the gospel for this, of course, so that we can just love and give and empty ourselves. Because that brings with it an element of risk. And, and, and so we've got, there's got to be a, a, a security in the soul. And that's what the gospel provides that enables for us to just love and to give. God calls us to empower, uh, God calls and empowers us to love with sincerity. The second thing that I want us to kind of look at is that to love others well, it flows from loving what God calls good. In verse 9, it says that we're to hate evil and cling to good. And the word uh, cling there, it literally means glued, joined. Glue yourself to what's good, to what God calls good. In, in Matthew 19, Jesus actually used this language. He said, for this reason, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and he'll glue himself to his wife. He'll cling to his wife. That's the word that's here. And it's this super strong language about being intimately acquainted with how God defines things that are good. And why is this language so strong? Consider how the world entered into brokenness in the first place. We got into this mess because in the beginning in Genesis 3, we decided what was good. Go back to Genesis 3 and God goes, here's how you enjoy all of creation. Maintain a creature-creation distinction. I'm the creator, you're the creature, and I'm God and you're not God. And so the way that you enjoy everything in this context is don't touch this tree. It's not good. It'll kill you. And our first parents said, actually, we'll decide what's good. and We think it looks good to eat. And they did. <clears throat> and so you see now, in order to love well, we've got to love what God loves and love, and love what he says is good. To love properly is to define good properly. The proper love of others, the proper love of ourselves, it flows from this ultimate love for God. And so notice that to hate evil and cling what's good, you've got love and hate in the same sentence, right? There's this connection between loving the right things and hating the right things. There's this uh, author and speaker. uh, Well, she's in her 70s now, so I don't know if she's continually uh, doing speaking, but she did a number of lectures in spiritual renewal and evangelism. Her name is Rebecca uh, Manley Pepper, and she wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, and she writes this about loving the right things. She says, Think of how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Real love, it stands in the, against the deception. It stands against the lie, the sin that destroys. And so learning to love what God calls good, that actually informs the way that we love others. Because without loving what God calls good, we can love the right things in the wrong way. So for example, if in my friendship... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't love honesty and sincerity, but I don't love it. Then when my friend is uh, gossiping, I'm not going to confront that because I don't love what's good and I'm not loving them. I'm actually in self-protect mode. I don't want to lose the friendship. If I'm in a romantic relationship with somebody and I don't uh, you know, love uh, uh, the priority that worship should have uh, in my life, or if I don't love faithfulness, then if the, if, my, if the person I'm dating is living in a way that's really contrary to m- my core ethics as a Christian, I'm, because I don't love what's good, and I'm really not loving them, and I'm in self-protect mode, I'm not going to confront it because I don't want to lose the relationship. 
If in my marriage I just don't want the drama of conflict, I'm not going to confront the ways in which my spouse may be uh, you know, unloving or uncaring or judgmental and vice versa. If we're in self-protect mode. The point is to love others well, we have to love what God calls good most. To love what he loves and then to love others in that way. And of course, in the, in, in the confrontation of the destructive patterns, to do that, of course, in a, in a loving and a caring and a gentle, uh, in, in, a, in a gentle way. If I'm a parent and I'm afraid of uh, losing the friendship of my children, I'm not going to confront the things in their lives that I see are destructive because I'm going to be in self-protect mode. If I'm at work and I don't love mercy and justice the way God loves mercy and justice, I'm not going to speak out when I see uh, injustice because I don't want to stick my neck out. So you can see how as we think through the things that God loves, as we love the things that God loves, we love others well. And so may the same grace that has rescued us teach this to us so that we can hate what's evil and cling to what's good and allow the clinging to what's good to fuel the way that we love others. The third thing that I want us to look at this morning is how, so firstly, God calls us to this love with sincerity, and in order to love others well, it's got to flow from what God calls good. And then there's this ongoing work of grace, and you can see it line by line by line here in Romans 12. This ongoing work of grace that really manifests in generosity and humility. You look at verse 13, it says, to share with those who are in need here in this church community and to practice hospitality. Hospitality is uh, philoxenia, and that word means the love of strangers. And when we think of hospitality, we think of opening our home up for friends and being, hey, let's have hospitality and have some friends over. Hey, that is beautiful and wonderful and needed. But it's interesting that the very word hospitality means love to strangers. So what the apostle does is he goes, hey, let's care for the needs that are within us and and have a love for strangers, for those that we don't know. You know, here at Redeemer, at the beginning of the month, we have these uh, community lunches where we practice this hospitality. The house is open, and many of you open your homes, and you have people come over, and some of them, some of the folks in this room you know, and others you don't, right? And, but you've opened your home, and you're like, come over for lunch. Um, Let me, let me get to know you. Let me get into your world, get into your life. Because you notice that as you work through this text, there's all these things like, Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. There's all of these very practical, tangible ways of loving that are really downstream from opening up your heart and your calendar. If you can't open up your heart and your calendar, then the rest, the rest of the entire book of Romans is not going to be relevant to you. And so you and I, very much as North Americans, uh, who uh, uh, put a priority and, and sometimes padlocks on our calendars, uh, need the work of the Spirit so that we can go, I'm going to open up my heart and my life and be a hospitable person and care and love uh, for the people in this community and even the ones in this community that I don't, don't really know that well. This transformed life, it's a tall order, right? It's this outward-facing life. And we're all, like, we're all like faulty laptops. We wake up every morning and our default settings are back. <coughs> and we need the gr- same grace that saved us to renew us so we can curve back outward into this outward... Uh, uh, facing position. And the good news of the gospel, as we apply the gospel to all of this, is that this isn't simply a call for you to just try harder. 
You see, this is, this is spirit wrought stuff. So this is an instruction for you and I, but it's also a description of you and I. This is a description of what the Spirit is up to and working. Some of you may look at some of these lit things as I was reading through them and say, oh my goodness, um, I don't look anything like that. The good news of the gospel is you can't just you know, roll your sleeves up and try harder to do it um, in, and, in and of itself. I mean, of course, it requires action. But this becomes a prayer now for you and I to say, oh Lord, I recognize and see this is not really present in me. Would you soften and melt my heart? And I'm, the reason I'm saying this and encouraging you and using all this language about it being the Spirit's work is because it's about to get a lot taller. When you get to verse 14, oh my goodness, it says, bless those that persecute you. <coughs> so how in the world do we love people that we don't even like? It's hard enough to love the people that you like. I mean, how do you love the people that you don't like? And again, remember how this whole text began. Love without hypocrisy. So don't just act. Don't fake it till you make it. Oh my goodness. How, do I, how could I possibly love somebody that I don't like and not be acting? You see that how this just brings all of us to our knees and goes, I do need the divine power of the creator of the cosmos to do this. How do I do it? This only makes sense. And this can only be done if God's mercy is in view. Because it brings us back to the fact that we are recipients of love that was not deserved. And unless we're mindful of that, there's no version of us giving love that's not deserved. God did not pursue and forgive and adopt and bless us because we deserved it and because we were likable in his eyes. God gave us undeserved love, and he covered us in scandalous grace, and united us to Jesus, making us beautiful in his eyes. So none of us can actually love our enemies before we commit to relating to them with love. The Spirit softens our hearts towards our enemies as we relate to them with love. It's actually in the process. This love for our enemies. It's slow and painful, but eventual, because it is the Spirit's work. You can't conjure this up. You can't conjure this love. You'll be acting. It's got to be a work of the Spirit that does it in our heart. Our hearts are softened towards our enemies through the act of loving our enemies. This is the ongoing work of grace. Practically speaking, what does it mean? It says, bless those who persecute you. It's talking... To bless is the way that you speak. Practically speaking, it's saying, speak well of those who do not speak well of you. Right? People who curse you, people who persecute you, it means they're aggressively pursuing you. They're aggressively seeking to discredit you. The text is saying, somebody's aggressively pursuing you to discredit you, don't reciprocate. Don't aggressively pursue them. And this brings up an appropriate concern. And the concern is, well, is the Bible telling me to be a doormat? Is the Bible telling me to disregard my emotional health? Is the Bible telling me to subject myself to abuse? Or is the Bible telling me to subject other people to abuse? If this person is an utter train wreck, am I supposed to just sit back and be like, well, guess we'll just let them do it? No, no, this is not, this is not what this is saying. The text is not prohibiting us from speaking truthfully about somebody who's committing injustice. The text is not prohibiting us from sparing others and protecting them from injustice. 
The text is prohibiting us from being vindictive, from vindictively trying to destroy somebody because after all, they tried to destroy us. The text says no. The scripture says absolutely not. That's not the form of Jesus' love and that shouldn't be the form of our love. In verse 16, it goes on and it further describes what our transformation looks like. It says, be willing to associate with people of low positions. What does that mean? That there's first-class Christians and second-class and economy and baggage department. And the apostle's like, hey, I know that some of you guys are all first-class Christians, Redeemer. And I know you've had the misfortune of being a first-class Christian sitting next to a second-class Christian. Oh, and behind you, there's a third-class Christian. But just try to love them anyway, guys. I mean, one day, maybe they'll be as holy as you. How nauseating. No. Not even close. The low position. What is this low position? This is a figure of speech. When you look throughout the Bible of people who are of low positions and lowly positions, these are people who are at the end of themselves. They're at the end of themselves. For whatever reason, they're in a season or a condition where they don't bring anything to their relationship. They don't bring anything to the relationship that benefits you. There is no ROI on having coffee with them. Because life has knocked the wind out of this person. And so you getting together to have a coffee is not going to be fun for you. They're in a low position. They're sad, or they're hurt, or they're depressed, or they're economically or emotionally distraught. Something has happened. So how do we react when we see these people? How do we, what do we do? Again, you see how desperate we are and we need the grace? Do you see why we need God's mercy in view? Do you see how we have to think about ourselves in light of the gospel to do this? Because will we move toward them? Or will we tap into that grocery store treadstone training? We're like assets being awakened in the grocery store. When we see somebody that we recognize and we have no time to talk, you know how quick you can get out of a grocery store? You're like Jason Bourne. When you want to get out of a grocery store, you see, you're just going along buying bok choy and you look and you see that person you recognize and you're like an asset that just got woke up. Something on the Muzak and Freshco just woke you up your treadstone training. You're like, I got to get out of here with anybody seeing. You can go through 17 shoppers, four produce workers, knock over a display of two liter Coke and get out of that store without anybody seeing you with nothing but a bag of marshmallows and your will to live. That's how much you can avoid having conversations when you don't want to have a conversation. I know that's weirdly specific, like I'm projecting. I'm projecting. When we are like, I got things to do, I'm out of here. Like, I'm not talking to you. The low position. The lowly position. What do we do? Church is over. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go have some coffee. And here they come. Whoa, boy. I know I'm making things up, and none of you have ever done this. But just imagine what it would be like to avoid someone that you didn't want to talk to because they were in a low position. And you're like, dude, I got my own drama. I don't have time for it. Do you see how desperate we need the work of the Spirit? 
So we can be like, hey, how are you doing? I'm going to carve 10 minutes out of my life to just enter into your sadness. This is the text. This is the, this is the, the, the gravity of this, when he says, hey, this is what this love is going to look like on the ground. And unless I look at the grace of Jesus that was given to me, I'm just not going to be capable of any of this. This love shows up like generosity. It manifests like humility. When you look at um, verse uh, 18 and 19, he goes on to say, don't hulk out and be your own avenger. God's the avenger. There's only one avenger here, and it's him. And the gospel, it liberates us from succumbing to the anger and the anxiety that accompanies the obsession of needing to exact our own judgment because we believe in a God of ultimate, final, and perfectly just judgment. And so this is not when he says, don't be, a ve- don't be the avenger, God's the avenger. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's not a call to inaction. Hey, church, let God deal with it. We don't care about injustice. No, you'll find that the church has always cared greatly about justice. It's not, it's not saying that. We just become passive about it. <clears throat> what it's saying is, if you become obsessed with being the avenger, you are going to seek to repay evil and in the process get infected with evil. J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings depicts this perfectly. You want to defeat evil while wearing a ring of evil? Guess what that's going to make you, bro? Evil. It's the picture of becoming the... It's the picture of becoming the thing we hate. It's the picture of becoming the very thing that we are rising against and having a problem with, of having that very thing infect us, becoming infected with the evil because we become vengeful. So the text warns us against this. We're called to overcome evil with good. Overcome is a military term. It's not passive. It's very aggressive. So how do we overcome this evil? Verse 20 goes on to say, Hey, if they're, if they're hungry, feed them. If the enemy's uh, thirsty, give them a drink. This generosity, this humility. He says, there's this, there's this way of responding that is in the contrary spirit to what's coming towards us. It goes on to say, that's like heaping coals on the head. That's a difficult phrase. What's that getting at? It's not like, uh, you know, well, this is how you really stick it to them, guys. Give them a drink of water and ha-ha, you just stuck it to them. That's not the spirit of this. The spirit of it is that we're not, we're not trying to stick it to anybody. Right? We're, we're, we're recognizing that God's love and grace is cross-shaped. Cross-shaped towards us. And so our love is cross-shaped towards others. So the goal, actually, is we're hoping that through our action of responding in a not-alike spirit, it causes repentance. That may our our means of not just retaliation, retaliating in the same spirit, may it cause them to come to a place of retent, repentance. It's not punitive, it's restorative. <clears throat> and so this whole passage, this is an instruction for us, Redeemer, but also, thank God, it's a description of us. It's a description of the Spirit's work so that when we say we want to be a loving community, when we say things like we want to be a gospel-centered church, we want to be a missional church, when we use those phrases, they're not just words that you throw on the website because they're trending right now. What this means for us is that our love is not just 
empty expressions of sentimentality, but it's walked out in very ordinary and practical, loving ways in this community. God's love for us is cross-shaped, and this transformed life is cross-shaped, and so in view of God's mercy, may the ongoing work of God's grace, may it be the driving force in our lives. May it captivate our hearts, and may it re-envision us to live these outward-facing lives. So that the love that God has shown towards us fuel the love that we have for one another. Let's pray.